You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Scott's Hill. Those of you who are joining us online, you're joining us a little bit late today because we had some difficulty with some of our equipment. We're so glad that you're able to still join us online. There are also individuals in the Crosspoint Center who are not seeing me right now uh, because of live streaming. We're actually playing the tape from earlier this morning. We had some technological glitches today, but praise the Lord, we got a team that can pull it together and still make these things work, so I'm always grateful for all of them. Great to see all of you here this morning. We are wrapping up our series today on Who's That? We've been looking at some unfamiliar Bible characters from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's always amazing how the Holy Spirit captures those for us because in all of those instances, there are opportunities for us to learn and to grow. Several years ago, I read a book entitled How to Speak to Youth. That was a many years ago, and Ken Davis was the author of that book. Ken Davis is an author, well-known Christian comedian. He was in circles for many years, traveling around and entertaining people. But one of the stories he tells in that book was a time where he was in college. And as he was in college, he had signed up for a communications class, and it was a creative communications class. And every person in the classroom had to give a speech, but it had to be a memorable speech that people would remember. And so he decided that he would give a speech on the law of the pendulum. Now that's not something that you would think would be very exciting. So he gets in front of the class and he lays out the law of the pendulum. And he talks about the apparatus of a pendulum with the string and some weights and it creates an arch. And when you let that arch go because of friction and gravity, it is going to have a certain impact when it returns. In other words, when you use a pendulum and when you release it, as it runs through its arc, it will return, but it will always fall short of the original point of release. And so he wanted to show his class this. So he had this apparatus that he had created to go on the blackboard and he attached it to the blackboard and he had a three foot string with a toy on the end of it. And he asked for two volunteers and the volunteers came up and he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the toy all the way to one end and I want you to put a mark on it here. And then when I release it, it'll come to the other end and the second person puts a mark on the board here. And as it returns each time, it will fall short of its original mark, but each time you are to keep putting a mark on the board. And so they did that. He released it, this person put a mark, it came over here, this person put a mark, it came back. And with each subsequent mark, it was falling shorter and shorter until it came to the point of equilibrium. Equilibrium is a point of rest where all forces on the object are at the same power in the same place. So he demonstrates this. Then he asks the class, he says, class, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And all the class says, yes. Then he says to the professor, sir, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And the professor says, yes. Well, the professor gets up thinking that the illustration is done. He says, no, no, sir, I'm not done yet. We're only halfway done with this speech. He said, over here on my right side is a desk that's up against the cinder block wall. And on the top of it is a chair. 
Sir, I would like for you to take your place sitting in the chair with your head firmly pressed up against the cinder block wall. So the man gets up there. He had four parachute strings hanging from the ceiling with 250 pounds of weight tied to the end of it. He said, sir, I would like to demonstrate the law of the pendulum. And so he brings the weights right up to the edge of the professor's chin, just, just a fraction of an inch. He said, sir, if the law of the pendulum is right, when I release this, it will follow its full arc. It will come back, but it will fall short from where I originally released it. Sir, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? He said beads of sweat were just piling up on his lips. And that professor said, yes, I do. Then he turned to the class. Class, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? Yes, we do. And he said, well, let's try it. He let it go. 250 pounds of metal weight start making their way across that room. It comes to the opposite end and it stops for a fraction of a second. And as it starts moving up towards the professor, Ken Davis says he'd never seen a man move so quickly in all of his life. He dove off of the top of the table and crawled up underneath the table. The classroom is all laughing. At this point, he says, class, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? They all said, yes. Then he said, does our professor believe in this law? And they all shouted, no. And of course, his point had nothing to do with the pendulum. It had everything to do with stated faith versus real faith. Because there's a difference between those two elements. There are many people who have stated faith and many of us can state that we have faith in this and we have faith in that. But the reality is when we're put in a situation where that faith is tested, only through the testing of it will determine whether it's authentic or it's just simply stated. And the reality is most of us live our lives talking about the things we believe. We talk about the things that we say we have faith in. And yet the determination of that authentic faith is going to be only through the testing of it to show whether it's real or not. As we conclude this series this morning on who's that, I wanna introduce you to an unknown woman in the Gospel of Matthew found in chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. So take your Bibles, if you will, or your devices to Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. This is an unnamed woman, but she is a foreigner to Israel. She is a woman of another race, a Canaanite, a Syrophoenician woman. And her story tells us of her great faith. Now, this is not something that we just simply derive from this text. It is specifically stated by Jesus himself that she was a woman of great faith. Now, there were two things that always stopped Jesus in his tracks. When you read through the gospel, these two things literally stopped him and caused him to be amazed. The first is unbelief. Jesus was amazed at unbelief. When he goes to Nazareth, the scripture says he could do very few miracles because of their unbelief, and he was amazed. But the other thing that stopped Jesus in his tracks was great faith. 
Those who had great faith, Jesus stood amazed at. And there are only two people in the Gospels who were said to have had great faith. Both of them were Gentiles. Both of them were outcasts to Israel. The first one was a Roman centurion, where Jesus says to him, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And the second time is the woman that I'm about to introduce you to. This woman, Jesus speaks of her incredible faith. As we unpack these verses this morning, I want to show you four marks of great faith. And we find these four marks that just flow right out of these verses, verses 21 to verse 28. Before we begin, would you join me as we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that it is absolute truth and we can trust it. And so, Father, this morning, as we look into your word and specifically at this topic of faith, I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, encourage us, challenge us, change us for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew captures by the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the story of this woman. Let me set the stage for you as we unpack it, beginning in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus and his disciples had been going hard in ministry. I mean, they have been doing ministry after ministry after ministry. There was the pressure constantly of daily ministry. There was the pressure of the religious leaders who were constantly riding on them. Things were beginning to get tense. They were beginning to get hostile. The religious leaders hated and despised Jesus more and more. They were exhausted from ministry, exhausted from the pressure. So Jesus is taking his disciples on a mini retreat. They're leaving the arid region of the Galilean Sea and they're going east towards the Mediterranean Sea. And there they're going for a little R&R, rest and relaxation, just to get away. But the interesting thing is you can see the popularity of Jesus has grown so much that no matter where he goes, people know about him. And as he finds himself to Tyre and Sidon, they're walking towards this place of rest. All of a sudden, it is interrupted. And we see that a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. In the middle of this rest, this woman comes out. She's a Canaanite. Now, the Canaanites were the enemies of the people of Israel. Matter of fact, when Israel was released from um, Egypt, and as they were going through the land, they were to destroy all the people of Canaan. But they did not do so. And they were to destroy them because of their absolute paganism. They were horribly pagan people. They were idolatrous people. They were immoral people. This woman was a group of people who would have worshipped Astarte, which is the, the god of fertility. And there was rampant immorality among the Canaanites. They were also idolatrous in the sense that they worshipped so many different gods. They had all of their little pagan gods they would call out to. They lived very immoral lives, but they were also involved in all kinds of demonic activity, which is not surprising that her daughter is demon-possessed. In this culture, demon possession was very common all through that region. So here's a woman who is absolutely the enemy of Israel. 
She was a woman that no one would ever expect who would find her way to Jesus. But she comes out of Tyre and Sidon. She comes out of that region and she finds Jesus. How does she respond to him? She says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. She knew about Jesus. We don't know how much she knew. We don't know how she knew. Had she been exposed previously to some of his preaching? Had she seen some of his miracles? We don't know. But the thing that we know is this. She recognizes there's something different about him. The gods of her culture cannot help her. The, the, the remedies of her culture are not setting her daughter free. All of the heritage and the rituals that she lived her life by have only left her in slavery. And she's come to the realization that Jesus must be the real thing. She calls him Lord. Then she uses a messianic title that the son of David, which means this, she recognizes he must be the promised one. He must be the Messiah. He must be the only one who can help me and my situation and my daughter. And so what does she do? She comes to the only person who has the answer for her life and for her future. She leaves her family behind. She leaves the rituals of her heritage. She leaves her dead, cold gods. She leaves everything that she's ever clung to and she comes to the only one who can help her. Now here's the first point that we have to remember. She knew very little about Jesus and yet she trusted him completely. Here's the first thing we learn. Great faith is not determined by the degree of one's faith, but by the object of one's faith. Great faith is not determined by the degree of one's faith, but the object of one's faith. You can have great faith in the wrong thing. You can have great faith in people. You can have great faith in governments. You can have great faith in security that comes from finances. You can have great faith in a relationship. You can have great faith in a lot of things that can never deliver you. You see, it's not about the depth and the amount of faith that you have. It's the object of your faith. Your faith is only as good as the object is that can deliver you and provide for you. And what she saw were the things of her culture could not provide. Her limited knowledge of Jesus Christ did not keep her from knowing that he is the only object of her faith that can deliver her. Several years ago, I read about a mountain climber. Her name is Evelyn Morris. And Evelyn had climbed Mount Rainier, 14,400 feet and she had done it multiple times. She was very widely known in those days in the late 70s. On one occasion, a bank wanted to use her as some kind of um, um, network or advertisement slogan. And so they had this situation where she was going to repel down the front of Mark Twain South Bank, several, several stories tall. It would have been a very routine thing for Evelyn because she had climbed multiple mountains. She connected her rope to this storm grate on the top and as she got to the edge, cameras are there, people were there, people were down on the bottom, watch her. She jumped off the side of the building and plummeted to her death. The problem was she connected it to a grate that wasn't grounded to the roof. And as a result, it could not sustain her. And I want to tell you, a lot of people 
have their faith in the wrong areas. A lot of people put their faith in people that cannot sustain them. They put their faith in maybe markets that will not be lasting. We put our faith in the wrong kinds of areas and as a result, those things cannot support us. But this woman, here's the amazing thing about her. There was limited knowledge about Jesus and yet she knew he was the only one who could sustain her. Here's where we get it wrong with faith. Sometimes we think our faith cannot be great because I don't have enough knowledge. Sometimes we think our faith cannot be great because I don't have enough experience in that matter. Sometimes we think our faith cannot be enough because I don't know enough about scripture. But the point is this, as long as Jesus is the object of your faith, it's not determined about how much you know, because here's the truth. There are always gonna be things in the Christian life that we don't know and we can't understand, but we've got to accept it by faith. Why? Because of the one who said it can be trusted. And there's sometimes we might have doubt in our lives and we let that doubt think, oh, I can't have great faith. No, no, even in the midst of doubting and I don't know how to explain it, Jesus is the object of my faith. He is the ageless creator of life. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the one who created all of the universe. He is the one who took on human flesh. He is the one who knows me intimately from eternity past. He is the one who died on the cross for me. He is the one who rose on the third day. He's the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who sent the Holy Spirit who began to do a work in my life and draw me to himself. He is the one who is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. There is no one greater than him. There's no name given greater than Jesus Christ. He is the object of my faith. And it matters not how deep my faith might be at this point. It is in him and it is all I need. Don't tie yourself to the things of the world that cannot provide what only Jesus can provide. Some of you are running to the wrong areas and those things will never support and provide you. And Jesus is saying, even the faith the size of a mustard seed is significant as long as he is the object. I love the way the writer of Hebrews says, that fixing our eyes on Jesus, he is the author and the perfecter of my faith. You want perfect faith, you want strong faith, put it in the object that will never let you down. And that is the Lord Jesus himself. This woman left everything because she fully believed that Jesus was the only answer for her life. Here's the second thing we learned from her. Great faith is not diminished by discouraging obstacles. She had some discouraging obstacles in her life. Let me give you a few of them. Matthew lays three of them out right in this passage, beginning in verse 23. But he, meaning Jesus, here she comes. She's crying out to them, asking to be healed for her, healing for her daughter. And Jesus did not answer her a word. I mean, as he's going along, she's crying out and Jesus is completely silent. His disciples came and implored him saying, send her away because she keeps shouting out at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this is pretty discouraging. You come out and you believe that Jesus is the only one who could provide all the answers for my life and here are three obstacles. What are the obstacles? Let me give them to you. One is silence by Jesus. Completely silence. 
He never said a word. He didn't even pay attention to her. He didn't even acknowledge her. He just kept walking. And here she is calling out and Jesus is silent. Secondly, they're scorned by the disciples. Send her away. Jesus, we're coming from R and R. Can't you please get her to be quiet? The indication here is, can't you just give her the miracle so that we can go about and she would stop yelling and screaming? And the implication comes from his response. And so even the disciples are scorning her. And then there's separation by her race, but more than her race, her gender as well. She was a woman in a man's world and a Syrophoenician who didn't have a part in the things of the kingdom of God. And she must have felt, I am so separated. I don't even have access to the blessings of God. Let me tell you, a lot of times we do the same thing, don't we? Think about that. How many times have we prayed for things and we felt that Jesus is silent? We pray and we pray and we pray and we just feel nothing. Our prayers are bouncing off the ceilings and we wonder if Jesus is just walking by ignoring us and he's not paying any attention to us. Sometimes we feel the scorn of other disciples. We share our prayer requests with other people and they ask us the the, the wisdom in even praying such a thing. Or you might as well just give up on praying that. Listen, the Lord's not answering you. It's time to move on to do something else. And we hear the scorn of fellow believers. Or sometimes, how about this? We feel separated because maybe we don't feel worthy. Now, we're never worthy of his grace, but sometimes we think the failures of our past are keeping us from blessings of the future. And many times we weigh so heavy on our own failures that we don't walk into freedom and the promises of God's word. And we can feel the same way. And here's the danger. Whenever we let obstacles stop us in our faith, we're saying that the obstacles are greater than Jesus. They're greater than him. Many years ago, I was in Africa on a Massamara. I was on one of those safaris and got to see a lot of different animals, but one of the cutest animals I saw out there was the African impala. The African impala was, is a graceful little deer, about that tall, very small, and they're so graceful, and you watch them run, they go all over the place. But the thing about an African impala is interesting. They can jump a height of 10 feet and cover a distance from one jump, 10 feet high, 30 feet in distance. That, that's like thinking of a basketball goal. They can jump over the rim of a basketball goal 30 feet. You would think, what could ever catch an African impala? But here's the interesting thing. You go to any zoo in the world, and an African impala is kept in a particular area with a wall that's only three feet tall and solid brick. So if this three foot tall solid brick wall can hold an African impala that can jump 10 feet high and 30 feet, how is that possible? Here's the answer. An African impala will never jump where it cannot see its feet landing. And because he can't see where the feet would land and the landing point, he never attempts to jump. And so for all of his life, he's kept behind an enclosure of a three-foot wall that has no power over him. Here's what happens too often in a Christian life. We run into obstacles and we give up. And some of these enclosures that are keeping us from experiencing the power of God are ridiculous. And we have the ability in Christ to be able to step beyond that. And here's the thing that we have to understand. Every single obstacle is an opportunity 
for my faith to grow deeper. Every single obstacle is the fertilizer that God uses to stretch me and to grow me in places of faith that I've never imagined before. And when you and I come to obstacles and we're willing to stop because of the obstacle itself, we're saying that this is stronger than the Lord Jesus. And then we begin to question, why doesn't he hear me? Then we begin to question, why are are other believers not supporting me in this? And I must not be worthy. And then what happens is, rather than our faith growing stronger, we demonstrate just how weak our faith really is. And what we see in this woman is regardless of the obstacles, she kept going to Jesus. What we're called to do in these difficult times when we are struggling is rather than to give into the obstacles, see that obstacle as an opportunity to develop something in me that I need. And it's through that obstacle that I can trust greater in him. John writes this in 1 John, he says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith in the right object of the person of Jesus Christ can overcome any obstacle in our life. Here's a third truth that we learned from this woman. Great faith has a dogged optimism. Now I like this, I picked the word dogged as kind of a pun because of what's about to happen but it is a dogged optimism. This woman refused to give up. And even though she was an outsider, by all accounts, she kept pursuing Jesus. And matter of fact, she even goes deeper in her pursuit of him. Look at verse 25. But she came and began to bow down before him. She came and began, which is an imperfect tense, which means she kept bowing down. I mean, you can see Jesus is walking along, ignoring her. She running in front of him and fall behind him. Maybe he turned a little bit and moved and she run over here and fell in front of him. She kept bowing down. She wouldn't give up. And as she kept bowing down, she kept saying, Lord, help me. And then he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. My goodness, what an insult, isn't it? He just called her a dog. Now, in this day, there were two words used for dogs. That's not, the one that Jesus uses here is different. The common one was of of a ravenous scoundrel of a dog that was vicious and mangy and mean and attacked people. It was a street dog. That's what they usually refer to dogs. But this word is the word for puppy. And it's a term of endearment. And what Jesus is saying, you you can picture how he would have said it. It wouldn't have been mean-spirited. It would have been very gentle. He would have just said, you know, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the puppies. And then what she does is brilliant, her response. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the puppies feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. You know how optimistic she is? She refuses to give up. Yes, you're right. It's not right to take the food that's for kids and give it to the puppies, but even the puppies get to receive the blessings from the master as it overflows from his people. And even as Jesus, you are ministering to your own people, your grace is overflowing into the lives of people around you. And I'm one of those puppies. 
She refused to give up. The thing that I love about this kind of faith is it's so optimistic. And here's the thing that you will see. You just look through time, you look through scripture, and you will find people who have great faith or optimistic people. They're always optimistic. It's not that they're, they're, they're not realistic, but the optimism of faith far exceeds what they see presently. How does a writer of Hebrews tell us about this faith? It is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things not yet seen. And this is the kind of faith she had. It was very optimistic. I was reading about Adoniram Judson. He was one of the first American missionaries. And he ended up in Burma. And as Adoniram is in Burma, he gets arrested for preaching the gospel and thrown into prison. He has 32 pounds of chains around his hands and his feet. As he's lying in this dungeon, this prison cell, there's a fellow prisoner with him who's agitating him. And the prisoner turns to him. He says, well, Mr. Judson, what do you think of the prospects of converting the heathen now? And here's what he said. The prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. And he continued in that ministry, trusting in the promises of God and God brings a harvest. Hudson Taylor was another one. He was a missionary to the Inland China Mission. And as he was there, they were broke and starving and there was, there was a famine. His wife was back home and he writes a letter to her and he says, we have 25 cents and all the promises of God. Optimism. That kind of faith is the faith like the little girl who went and met with a whole bunch of farmers one night because there was a drought. And all the farmers showed up to pray and she showed up to pray with them, but she was the only one who brought an umbrella. That's optimism. The little boy, he wants a rope swing and there's a little oak sapling in his backyard. He takes a rope and he ties it to each of the sapling's branches and the rope's all hanging on the ground and the wooden plank is there and he's standing in front of it with a water hose. Optimistic faith. I love what one man writes about this kind of faith. He says, great faith is dead to doubts, dumb to discouragements, blind to impossibilities, knows nothing but success. Great faith lifts his hand through the threatening clouds, lays hold of him who has all power in heaven and on earth. Great faith makes the up look good, the outlook bright, the in look favorable, and the future glorious. That's an optimistic faith. And it's an optimistic faith because the object of our faith can do whatever he desires. What would happen if the body of Christ would have that kind of optimism? What would what happen if the body of Christ came together collectively and we believed the promises of God? What would happen if we had that kind of optimism and rather than letting obstacles get us to be so discouraged that we get angry with God because he's not working our plan, but instead, in the midst of all the obstacles, we have this optimistic faith that's saying, I believe my God can do it and we're trusting him for it. I'm not talking about unrealistic faith, I'm talking about godly faith that believes that God can do what he desires. I believe the church would see things that they've never seen. I believe that we would experience the power of God that we've never experienced. I believe we would see people's lives being transformed. I believe we would see deliverance. I believe that we would see breakthroughs like we've never seen before because of the optimism of faith that's based in Jesus Christ and him only. That's the kind of faith 
that is great faith. Here's the last part of that. Great faith delivers great opportunities. We see the result of her faith. And we say great faith because Jesus is the one who called it that. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, oh woman. It's almost like an exclamation there. Wow. I mean, after all he did, he ignored her. She fell before him. She answered with great humility and optimism. Jesus is just stunned. He's taken back. Wow, woman, your faith is great. And for Jesus to say that is something spectacular. Jesus was never impressed with the morality of people because nobody compared to him. He was never impressed with the righteousness or the wisdom of people because nobody could compare to him. But the one thing that captured his heart was this kind of faith that caused him to be stunned because of her belief in him. He says, it shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Because of her great faith, the thing that she was able to see out of that were some incredible opportunities of what God had just done. And Jesus healed her daughter. Now, here's what's interesting. The little girl's not there. Most likely, she's home. She's demon-possessed. She's out of control. She's probably got people watching her, controlling her. This woman goes by herself. There's no indication that the little girl's there, which means this, that Jesus can heal with no problem from a distance. He doesn't have to be physically present. He said, let it be done. And in that moment, she was healed. Which is another thing, that there is no difference between Jesus being physically present with you and healing or answering your prayer than he sitting at the right hand of the Father and doing it from the very throne of God. Distance makes no difference in his power. And what happens? There's great opportunity. I think that what we need to see is that many times we talk about our great faith, but the testing of that is gonna determine the kind of faith we really have. You see, some of you are thinking you can never have great faith because your, your knowledge is limited, not so. Some of you are thinking I can never have great faith because of just a failure in my life, not so. Some of you are thinking, I can never achieve those great things because of my own past. Not so. It's all based on how deeply you trust Jesus. And if everything in your life is brought to him and you recognize that he's the one, he's the object, he's the central focus of my life and anything that I need goes through him. Tie your rope to Jesus, not to the structures of the world or the systems of the world, that will never, ever satisfy. I love what C.H. Spurgeon wrote. One of the great Baptist preachers, speaking of faith, he says this, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than the faith that swims in the depths of divine revelation. A faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor faith at best. It is little better than a dry land faith. And that is not good for much. Children of God, those of you who have been redeemed by Christ, 
Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your journey began with faith and trusting Christ. But every single day of your life requires that constant faith in him. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And every single day of your life, Jesus is the one to be the object of all of your hope, all of your faith, all of your power, all of your needs. Bring your children to him every day. Bring your concerns to him every day. Bring your future to him every day. He's the only one that can go beyond the boundaries and the borders and all of the distractions of your life to bring you where he wants you to be. Trust him with that kind of faith. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, my friend, I'm here to say this to you, that Jesus is the only answer for your life. If you're trusting in someone else or you're trusting in the things of the world or you're trusting in your own faith and faith, all of that's empty. And it will leave you enslaved and ultimately separated from God. But Jesus loves you so much that he came to die in your place. He is the one who has brought you to this place where you are right now. And he's drawing you to himself. And he's the one that wants you to surrender to him that he would be the object. He would be the savior. He would be the Lord of your life. Maybe you've been coming to Scotts Hill for some time and you've been hearing the message of the gospel over and over and over and we have been declaring to you every single Sunday that Jesus is your only hope and you know that there's been something going on in you. There's been something warming of your heart and you know it's true. And today, maybe that last resisting bolt of your soul has been stripped loose. And the Spirit of God is calling you to surrender right now. That takes faith. You say, I don't know all the answers. I've got some doubts. That's why it takes faith. And you don't have to know everything. Just that Jesus is your only hope. And he's the one that can take the junk of your life and clean it up and give you a new life. He doesn't remodel you. It's not an extreme home makeover. It's a regeneration. It's a new heart. It's a new life. And only Jesus can give you that. And maybe today is your day. Would you be bold enough today to just say, Lord, I surrender. I fall at your feet like that woman and I just cry out. I believe you're my only hope. And you give everything to him. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, everyone. There may be some of you watching at home that right now the Holy Spirit's dealing with your heart and he's calling you to surrender. You can do that today. Pray this prayer to yourself, not out loud, just Just say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I've been trying to live life on my own, but I know today that Jesus is your son. He's the only one who has died for me, risen from the dead, and is drawing me even now. And right now, I surrender my life to you. 
I ask you to be the Lord and the Savior of my life. I trust you completely. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Help me to live for you all my days. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.